Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi guys, I'm Jim. Uh, I'm the Leicester City representative for the EPL Roundtable. You can find me on Twitter at JimKnight88. Hi, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a former chairman of the New York Spurs uh, Supporters Club, and uh, you can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin. All right, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. Uh, not so much of a light topic today. Um, previously, we had uh, discussed uh, with our, our Manchester City correspondent if we wanted to really dive in on some of the nasty headlines that have been written about Raheem Sterling over the past. Um, never seemed an opportune time to do it, and, and uh, now it's, it's just out in the open after what's happened at the weekend. For those that don't know, um, <laughs> during the Manchester City-Chelsea match, um, at Stamford Bridge, some fans were racially abusing Raheem Sterling, and it was caught very clearly on video. Um, that has resulted in four suspensions for the uh, people that were caught in that clip. Um, then, well, first of all, obviously this has happened plenty of times to both Raheem Sterling and other black players. Just last week, a banana was thrown uh, in the direction of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in the North London Derby. But one of the reasons why there's been so much coverage, and then we're obviously going to be included in that, um, is that Raheem Sterling responded. And he's tended to shy away from the media in the past on this issue and on other issues. <clears throat> but he has been very unfairly treated in the media. I think most people would agree um, up to this point. And he finally called it out. Um, we'll start with um, his specific complaint. In his Twitter message, he brought up uh, two different headlines from the Daily Mail focusing on Phil Foden and uh, Adebayo, who both bought parents for their mothers. One just said Phil Foden, the whiter player, that he bought his mother a £2 million home. The other one brought up that Adebayo, they brought up his wages, the price of the home, that he hadn't played for Manchester City yet in a senior match. What do you guys think of both the racial incidents at the weekend and uh, how Sterling responded first? Well, um, I'll kick off. I, I, I actually, I think Sterling was right and, and actually quite restrained, uh, given the circumstances in his Instagram comments, Kevin. I'll, I'll come on to that in a, in a second. But I, I suppose, first of all, um, it's disappointing that we, we don't have a black commentator on, on our show to talk about this. Just as it's disappointing that there aren't more black football writers generally, it's, it's part of the general underrepresentation of minorities in, in the institutional structures of the game and and it's a perspective that's that's incredibly important if we want to try and fix this and and of course to make sure that um, you know the sport we love is something everyone can love and that's that's why we're here so um, with with that in mind I, I could just sort of point people to uh, a piece by uh, one black journalist Darren Lewis at the Daily Mirror who, who wrote yesterday that 
And this is really interesting. He said, what, what has happened with uh, Sterling's response? And he made the connection to athletes' activism in the U.S. and the Colin Kaepernick situation. Maybe, you know, you could talk a little bit about that later. Mm. Is that basically what, what Sterling was doing is trying to show other black players that taking a stand against this sort of treatment, it, it, it's not just possible, but it's actually essential. Um, given, given you know what what he's had to endure, not not just on this one particular uh, instance, uh, the, the the alleged abuse um, uh, at Chelsea, but but literally through you know through the recent parts of his career, um, and and you know we'll come on to talk about the media, but you know as as far as the media is concerned, in, in terms of accountability, um, you know as well as I do, both sports writers and, and sports pages have always been a breed apart. From uh, from the rest of the, the journalistic enterprise, um, you know whether that's in how they report on speculation about transfers to how they identify and portray players and managers, particularly England managers actually, who for whatever reason they think uh, their readers are entitled to vilify, and and they can be both bandwagon leaders and bandwagon jumpers in that. Um, so you know the, the responsibility. He's right. I mean the responsibility is there with the media to, um, to, to report these things in a, in a sensitive and intelligent way without actually lumping people into, into camps. And I'll, I'll come on to talk a bit about that later. But I also, um, I don't know if you saw Piers Morgan's comments. I, I, I probably yeah. didn't help I think, when he, he tried to equate um, you know, the, the Sterling's treatment to, to the treatment of Wayne Rooney. And if you think back even further, you know how how David Beckham was universally <laughs> attacked at every ground after after being sent off in the World Cup, but but I think the treatment of Sterling has been really on a on a different order, something quite different, and, and seemingly uh, with no cause. Well, no, but it, it, it it's also it's acted as a catalyst now. I think, as you said in the intro, it's acted as a catalyst now that everybody has to think about this, and so that's a good first step, and and in a way the the, the collective. Uh, intelligence of, of Britain's sports reporters have decided that he is the latest collective target for somehow everything that's wrong with the game. But he has undoubtedly been been treated much more harshly than any other players. And and, and I don't know if you saw the the PFA came out in its statement today um, uh, in support of Sterling and and to criticise how what they call quote a negative narrative influences public opinion and and that certain sectors of the media have to be held to account. So yeah, I think there definitely is a, a responsibility, and I think I think Sterling was was absolutely right to say what he said. Yeah, the the issue that's so striking, and it's obvious why Raheem pointed this out in his Instagram post, is that it almost seems like certainly here, I won't say all black players, because obviously there have been plenty of discussions recently about say why Marcus Rashford isn't subject to similar stories to that of mm-hmm. Raheem Sterling. It does seem like Raheem Sterling is at the front and centre of this, which for no real reason other than he's very, very good at football and the colour of his skin, seemingly. Um, He's being made a target for non-footballing reasons. And that is, you know, some people will say what happens on the pitch is fair game, a bad performance. And, you know, Piers Morgan's example of David Beckham being sent off is an on-the-pitch antic. That is within a sport sports writer's uh, ballpark to criticise a player who made what I'm sure he would openly admit now was a stupid decision at the time. Raheem Sterling's criticism seems to come from a different place entirely, and it seems to go along with this rhetoric of kind of edging towards the 
left of the political, sorry, the right of the political agenda. And it, it ends up with footballers being criticised for things like buying their parents' houses. I mean, the example that he pointed out um, of Phil Foden, the stories are virtually identical and yet they're reported in such a different way. And John Barnes made a few fantastic points. He did an interview on the BBC uh, breakfast show um, this morning, Monday, as we record. And I'd urge anyone who's kind of got an interest in this topic to dig out the, the YouTube um, clip, which is about seven minutes long. Um, and he talks so eloquently and articulately about uh, problems within wider society and how certain sections of uh, the, the population based on ethnicity or religion are being marginalised and therefore it's creating this negative rhetoric mm. that's being replicated in football. Football isn't the problem here, but it is a magnifying glass for problems that are within our wider society. Um, and he goes on to say, and I'm totally in agreement with him on this, that football can't solve these problems because the next step the next logical step for a lot of people off the back of this Raheem Sterling story will be how does football solve its racism problem? Mm. And that is absolutely, yes, it might be the focal point at this particular moment in time. It is absolutely not the wider issue and football can address, you know, its racism problem however it would like to. If that negative rhetoric towards certain members of our society is being peddled by the media, both in a wider front page and back page context, that problem is going to continue. And then the media does have a responsibility in the way that it addresses these various different people in various different ways. There is no good reason to report that those two very, very similar stories in completely different ways, other than you have an underlying issue with one of those players. And it's not down to their footballing ability. And it's just... Yeah, Raheem Sterling is right to call it out. And goodness knows how many times he's been subjected to these stories and he's probably wished he could call them out. And it's almost like now it's happened on the pitch. It's given him the leeway to be able to make that statement because he probably didn't feel like he wanted to or was confident enough to necessarily do it or just didn't want the hassle. And who can blame him? Yeah. When story comes out about how much he spent on his house, how much his mum's bathroom costs when he had it refitted. There's another story that I remember seeing kind of way back when. And it, it almost, you know, also, he is a footballer who's investing in property. People in other areas of, or, or other people in football, like Robbie Fowler, for example, who invested in, in, in property a lot when he was playing and is, uh, is, by the sounds of it, reaping the benefits of owning half of Liverpool and Manchester, um, you know, from a financial perspective, a kind of, if, if that was a, a footballer, a non-black footballer or a football from outside the black and ethnic minority um, group, then they might well be praised for their entrepreneurial spirit, you know, their way of looking at, at alternative incomes off the pitch with the problems with footballers um, being, you know, a lot of them being bankrupt a few years after earning millions and millions of pounds a year. Mm -hmm. It's the way it's reported is completely, you know, different. But to go back to the Daily Mail point, the Daily Mail pedal a far right rhetoric on the front page of their mm. newspaper. And that is only being reflected in the back page. But that's the point. The point is that you can't pet, you can't suddenly row back on that rhetoric on the back page 
and expect people not to read the front page story about migrants and how they're to blame for this, that and the other. And, you know, or how certain people are vilified on the front page of the paper and not expect that to seep into wider society. Because as much as the print industry is in decline, particularly the Daily Mail, Mail Online is a media juggernaut. It's read so widely that that kind of stuff does start to seep into wider society. And I've no doubt that there are people who harbour those feelings from their past and whatever has happened to them is their business. But that only legitimises their viewpoint. And that is inevitably going to make its way into other areas of society that include sport. And in this case, particularly football. Yep, I, I absolutely agree with that. And actually, Darren Lewis makes the point, the contrast in the print media and broadcast media. He makes the point in, in his piece yesterday. And he, uh, he talked about this idea that, you know, uh, the Sterling story for broadcasters is like five or six minutes of air time before they move on to whatever the next thing is. But, but for black people, it's a microcosm of their lives. That was his actual quote. And, and he's right. I mean, racism is prevalent in every part of our society, whether it's in, you know, employment and earning power, housing, educational opportunities. And we've had the debate, you know, recently about um, access to, to higher education places and, and or relationships within the legal system. And, and I think if you accept that that is there and you add that to the fact that you're, you're never going to be able to eradicate racism from society completely. So while, as you say, Jim, football is a societal activity, there will inevitably be supporters who are racist. And allied to that, there have always been people who believe, just standard football supporters, who believe that buying a ticket entitles them to say whatever they want and, and hurt whoever they want in, in the process. So, you know, there, there is, although it is a societal issue, and you're right, it's not, you know, football can't fix that. There is a responsibility on football and for the clubs to, to basically, you know, how do they define what is acceptable behavior and what's not? And that's long been a, um, a, an issue for, for clubs and how they think about their relationship with the people who come through the turnstiles, you know, every week. But, but there is, and you hinted at it, Jim, but there is actually something else that needs to be pointed out. And, and I don't want to get political, but <clears throat> it's important in terms of, how our civic discourse is evolving. And and it's no coincidence, we talked about this before we went on air, but it's no coincidence really that, that Britain's going through a, a, something of a social convulsion at the moment over Brexit, which, which has, I think it's fair to say, emboldened some people to believe that certain opinions are now more mainstream and it's somehow acceptable to voice them in public. And, and you know, you made the point about the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and attitudes to, to immigrants. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, regardless of how Brexit resolves itself, the country, the country is divided. The country is permanently divided. And it's in the process of dividing further along age lines with those implications for how, you know, we all as a, as a collective, as a country, define what's acceptable. But I think one of the end results, like it or not, is, is, is going to be that some people are going to more strongly believe that they're entitled to say what they like, no matter how incendiary that might be. And, and as you say, the, the readership of those sorts of papers might influence people in terms of um, you know, how, how they respond to 
clickbait headlines, clickbait articles, things that are designed to gin up controversy and, and create um, argument uh, on the on the message boards. And, and of course, you know, the instant outrage of social media doesn't help and hasn't helped. I mean, to, to you know, get away for another to another subject for a second, all you have to do um, is do a, a Twitter search for James McLean around poppy time. And, uh, you know, we also saw it this year with Nemanja Matic for different reasons to see how opinions become hatreds and, and whether or not we actually really value anyone's uh, individual right to stand up and protest about something. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's all part of the same kind of um, snowball effect, I think, for want of a better expression, of 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 how something gets escalated very, very quickly and how we stand up to it and fix it. Yeah, I really like that point that you brought up because it does seem like this kind of self-sustained cycle of a readership craving and clicking on content that has controversial headlines like that, encouraging papers to push more and more aggressive narratives, which gets more and more praise. And then as all that's happening, as Jim was pointing out earlier, then it encourages and, and I think as you said, Steve said, embraces readers with those points of view to to share them more publicly. Um, but I think also interestingly, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, that this has dragged everything into the spotlight. Um, again, trying to not get too political, but in the States, um, recent events in politics have also brought out more and more um, racist issues, um, which in the long term, I suppose could end up being better than if all of those things had just remained buried, but it certainly does not make things enjoyable to have to deal with right now. Um, we mentioned earlier uh, the four suspensions for the Chelsea fans that were there. This seems to be the go-to for clubs when situations like this happen, but considering the rate at which they keep happening, do, do you think suspensions could be effective or do you think there's something else that needs to be done to try to prevent this in the ground or as you guys were saying is the issue more cultural than football I, i'm not sure what more the clubs can do other than bans um to be honest and and i think it's like any other form of of punishment once you once you ban somebody for life for example i mean that's you're setting the bar that means that every other instance of a similar offence or a similar transgression has to be punished by a similar level of uh, of punishment. Um, so I, I'm not sure beyond just that uh, what what the clubs themselves can can do, but but they do have a responsibility to in that process in the process of how they punish people who are found guilty of these. And and you know it's worth pointing out that. The, the Chelsea suspensions today, for example, are while the investigations going on. No one's actually been charged with anything yet, but but the clubs have responsibility in the process of punishing um, people who are, who are guilty of, of these things. They have a responsibility to try and set some kind of moral code by defining what they think is acceptable behaviour or what they think their fans should aspire to. Uh, as, as supporters of Chelsea, as supporters of Leicester, as supporters of Tottenham Hotspur, you're supposed to aspire to a, 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 a sense of collective um, responsibility and and moral values. Um, if that's that's it's probably you know pie in the sky stuff, but but I think the clubs have responsibility to actually try and set that 
that moral code as well as punishing people or do it in the process of punishing people? Yeah, it's it's the only real recourse the club have um, in terms of suspension while the investigations are ongoing and then enforcing bans if deemed appropriate based on the findings of those reports. But it, it is, you know, it's also down to them to help the authorities from a legal standpoint to fully identify what actually went on and, it, and then contribute to that legal kind of system if if need be you know these are essential you know racially abusing someone or abusing someone based on the color of their skin or their sexual orientation it can be viewed as a hate crime and it should be you know viewed as such regardless of whether or not it happens in a city center on a saturday night or at a football club on a saturday afternoon it it ultimately as steve rightly says the club have and i'm sure will if found guilty publish uh, publicly admonish those offenders and kind of take every step they can that's deemed appropriate in terms of punishment. And that's absolutely fine. And, you know, Kev, as you said, in terms of it happening on a regular basis now, that's a sad state of affairs, but you just have to take that relatively, you know, not even hard line, just appropriate measure and hope that the banning orders or whatever punishment is administered to those people acts as a deterrent. No one's expecting, I don't think anyone's expecting that to suddenly mean that racism isn't in football, but at least it may act as a deterrent for those who may have tendencies in that direction, not to act that way at a football ground, you know, because of the consequences of doing so and I know that isn't solving the core issue but again as I was speaking about earlier and I think John Barnes put it better than I ever could and obviously comes at it from a much more informed much more eloquent standpoint uh, given what he's been through in his career and when he was playing it has to be it, football can't be the be all and end all for this but it can certainly be a start um, and you know hopefully it shows off the back of this investigation, that that is simply not acceptable in any strata of society, let alone at a football ground. I think going back to what Steve was saying, the issue with with football is that it's such a tribal um, exercise. Going to a football game, there is, you know, and one of the great things that we love about sport and football in particular is there are relatively few things in life that bring together so many people in such a kind of tribal way it's the only way i can really describe it there are very few things in modern life that galvanize that kind of number of people together in such a short period of time and in such a a a small geographic location um and i think as much as that is something that we love about football and you know the fandom and um the kind of family values almost that are adopted by football clubs they're seen as centers of uh society and communities and their hubs and places for people to go and they often act as support mechanisms when people are going through tough times and it, it provides people from different backgrounds with common ground um you know when you support the same football team and it gives you that instant kind of um recognition of someone else and you you instantly understand what that person um likes necessarily about that football club or you know what they've gone through if they've been a supporter for you know the similar time to you have you'll have been through similar things as supporters of that football club but unfortunately that tribal kind of pack mentality also can bring out the worst traits in people because 
it allows those people that those kind of negative feelings if they're there under the surface not only to surface but to kind of go uninhibited because for those two hours on a Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening whenever the game is played those people often see it as a release it's a it's the focal point of people's weeks and unfortunately you know if people are allowed to express those opinions sometimes they're going to stray into things that aren't deemed acceptable by wider society and they just need to be punished as such because you know it isn't acceptable and it shouldn't ever have a place in football and while like I say I'm not I'm not expecting football to address it overnight the best thing that any club who's kind of embroiled in this can do is once the people are found guilty or if they are indeed found guilty we don't want to assume guilt on anybody's part at this specifically at this point with regards to the Chelsea uh, fans it once the investigation is over if they are indeed found guilty of what um, is being alleged they should be punished to the full effect of the the football club's ability and that unfortunately well I say unfortunately actually in reality that ends at banning orders because the football club don't have the legal jurisdiction to go further then it's in the hands of the the metropolitan police and and for them to to follow up on it from a legal standpoint which is a completely different story but the football club have an obligation to work with those authorities to ensure that you know that that investigation continues outside of a footballing context if required yeah no I think that tribalism uh, uh point is, is really important, Jim, actually. And I, I, I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was Simon Cooper uh, who wrote a book um, uh, about uh, tribal identifications in international football. And he, he, he called uh, uh, international uh, competitions like the World Cup and the, and the Euros a, a peaceful form of war in, in that it's how national rivalries can be, can be acted out in a relatively sort of insulated envir- environment. And I, I was just I was just curious. I mean, when we talk about the punishments, we talk about the banning orders and that sort of thing, just just to stay with international uh, football for a second, does anyone know how effective the banning orders that were imposed on England fans, for example, uh, is there a way of sort of following up to know uh, whether those are, those are actually effective or not? If you can stop people traveling to games, is that uh, a more effective way of, of punishing them? But I mean, Jim's absolutely right. This is it, it, it's a social issue, but it's also something that if there's an offense committed, the, the offense shouldn't it shouldn't matter where the offense is committed or the context in which it's committed. If it's it's, it's like on social, uh, if you, you you wouldn't say something on social that you would say some to someone's face or that you you shouldn't uh, say something on social that you wouldn't say to someone's face. It's the same. It's the same mentality, I think. But um but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, how how do clubs actually deal with that uh, within within the, um, the, the 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 sanctions that exist for them uh, that are agreed and accepted and understood by the um, by the supporters clubs, for example, who they uh, they know that if they transgress, that that there will be certain punishments that go along with it. But that that tribalism as well, it reminds it brings up an interesting point that that there is that as increasingly everyone polarizes that there is this tribal identification that, you know, everything my side does is right. Everything your side does is wrong. It sort of reinforces this, this echo chamber effect where people only want to hear voices that, that endorse their uh, previously held beliefs. And, and it, it brings up that interesting question that we haven't addressed yet is, is how, you know, how these so-called supporters regard black players who play for their own team and how they may yeah. or may not, 
see the contradiction in that. I mean, for example, the guys who, <clears throat> you know, allegedly yelled at, at, at Sterling pro uh, probably loved Didier Drogba, for example. So the, the, there is that inherent um, tribal uh, contradiction. Yeah, and we certainly see that in the States with college football in particular, but the NFL as well, of racism being shown towards people of a race on the other team. But it, it, it kind of follows that you're one of the good ones mentality that exists to to avoid contradiction for racists. If they know somebody of a different color and they're all right, then it's like, okay, well, you're all right. You're one of the good ones. But what about all those other ones? And you're like, what other ones? Um well, that was the point you were making before we came on air, Kev, about the um, uh, the guy who threw the banana skin at Obama. Yeah, yeah. For those that don't know, the guy that threw a uh, banana skin at Obama offered a half apology, where he started off by just claiming he wasn't racist, then said he was Greek, so he couldn't be racist, um, and then just basically kept backtracking further and further to where it really wasn't an apology at all. And he, unlike what's happened with the Chelsea fans, has actually been uh, banned for life from Tottenham fans, which, as you guys were saying, uh, seems to be club's best recourse uh, for when this happens. <clears throat> On a larger scale, uh, FIFA, of course, had an anti-racism task force that they disbanded a couple years back, uh, claiming that the job was done. Then they followed up with a statement basically saying, we're not saying racism is gone, but a task force is a short-lived thing. Um, but there don't really seem to be anything else other than just the continued campaign of uh, say no to racism. Do you think if the clubs are, are limited to just being able to ban people from matches that there should be something done more by football associations and perhaps FIFA and UEFA on, on, on that scale? It's difficult because it's how far the reach of the football clubs go in terms of, uh, particularly from a major international governing body like FIFA and UEFA. They obviously have a responsibility to you know try and ensure that the game that they are um administering is 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 free of those kind of problems but ultimately it goes back to not only the wider societal point but like an education standpoint as well as as steve rightly kind of pointed out the the issue is that people will have those feelings in those crowds and that will never go away I don't think it, it's a nice idea to believe that it will but unfortunately human nature and the way that people act and as we've seen in the last few years and we've touched on a couple of times in this podcast already about the political climate leaning more towards um, the, you know those dividing lines and those things that are meant to polarize the debate you know those kind of things will mean that those views are being held at that point. It's, I just don't know what, it, it, it's not a good soundbite for FIFA to disband their racism task force um, because obviously there is still issues and there are still international teams, for example, that play behind closed doors in qualifiers and friendlies because of previous issues around racism. And, you know, We've seen those punishments administered since that task force has been disbanded. So, uh, and no one, I don't think, is naive enough to believe that it's not going to be an issue. But I think the problem is how you access and how you build that into the grassroots of football supporter kind of fandom, if you like. It's, it's so difficult because... There is only so far as a football administrator you can reach, I guess. Your your pinnacle is major tournaments, but the problems stem from way, way before those 
kind of showpiece events come about. Um, and it, it's not an enviable task. Obviously, you have a duty to deliver the game in the format that you do and you hope that it isn't marred by those. But as, as you rightly pointed out, Kev, you see so many, not so many incidents, but you see the prevalence of those incidents in the last couple of years. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Chelsea fans, when I think it was when they went to Paris, um, a group of supporters that are in Paris for a game yeah. against Saint Germain, and you know who have uh, who were um, abusing someone in Paris, and that you know one of the leading motivations was clearly the colour of his skin, and you know it's how the international governing bodies or any governing body kind of attempts to tackle that. But I, I wholeheartedly believe the issue is in in education and. and it's in helping in that way football perhaps can be a useful vehicle in in allowing people to understand that you know we're all human at the end of the day it really shouldn't matter about the color of your skin your ethnicity your sexual orientation any kind of unique identifying factor that people believe kind of sets one person apart from the other it really shouldn't matter and actually perhaps football has a you know a wider reach than almost anything else in the world to to get that message across it's just an extremely difficult thing to administer because it's how you kind of get that message to people because football unless you are involved in like the grassroots side of things which is obviously fantastic if you can if you can help breed that mentality that it doesn't matter into the the young footballers of today hopefully that will come through and you know those people playing under nines under tens football even younger you know clubs academies pick players up at four five and six these days if those players go on to be the next generation or the future generations of football writers hopefully that will start to seep into the media coverage and the broadcasting schedules of football and the wider kind of sporting context but yeah it's it's not there's no easy fix i don't think because if there was you'd have hoped even fifa and uefa with all their relevant problems that we know about and we hear on a regular basis Hopefully they will have tried to address those, but it is it is very very difficult beyond punishing people when those issues come to a head. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, the education point, Jim, is absolutely crucial as well. I think that is something where the clubs can take a stand and get involved and actually work with local schools and local uh, community groups as well as working with their their supporters uh, groups as well and and I know certainly the Spurs uh, have a media or a, a social outreach um, uh, effort that goes into local schools and and talks to talks to kids about uh, 
about issues and that sort of thing and and works with them within the within the framework of uh, identifying with the club because that's again it gets back to this idea of what do we hold up as a model of how we want our club to be and and you know the the broader uh, uh, broader programs like Kick It Out or or uh, Rainbow Laces as well, which we which we saw uh, you know just last weekend as well. Those are hugely important, but again, they come down to how the individual clubs uh, manifest that. Is it just something that they do for the weekend, or you know, again to go back to the poppy um, uh, situation? Is that something that where the commitment continues through the year? Uh, it it has to be an ongoing, and it has to be part of what we decide as supporters and, and members of a club that those are the values that we want to we want to hold our club to and we want to hold uh, up to the the local communities and encourage them to uh, to be part of that so yeah I think that, that having having the clubs involved in in educational outreach I think is absolutely absolutely crucial and that's a, that's a very good point uh, taking a step back from solutions for the football aspects with the clubs and, and FIFA and the like, um, what kind of course correcting needs to happen uh, in the world of journalism to prevent this kind of unfair portrayal that Raheem Sterling in particular has received, uh, as well as some of these, these younger players? Obviously, one of the reasons I wanted to have you both on is that uh, you've both been in the media industry. So curious to get your take on, on how that, that side of things could be uh, resolved or improved. Well, I mean, alongside anything that, that clubs do, um, it, it's definitely something that's going to require journalists at some point to say, you know, maybe we're not going to take the easy story here that we think uh, reflects and reinforces what our readers are thinking and therefore will get us more clicks. Uh, but rather, you know, just as the club ha- has to hold up some kind of moral code, but rather papers have to try and act as kind of a moderating influence. But I mean, I mean, people are still going to read their pages. It's not, you know, like readers are going to change to a paper that's more vitriolic uh, and, and sort of drift away that way. Although it does raise issues about, and, and, and Jim, you've worked as a sports writer, you know more about this probably than I do, but it raises issues about the, the um the posse uh, element of how sports writers hook onto the latest story and everybody follows the follows the uh, follows the caravan on that, uh, but it also does raise those issues about individual clickbait stories on on social and how, as we were saying before, how headlines are deliberately constructed and deliberately written to be provocative and to encourage uh, encourage arguments basically within readers and to and to essentially then have stories that 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 uh are perhaps provocative in that way mentioned on uh wider media on the on radio five live or or the bbc breakfast or whatever that happens to be and i think unfortunately that's just that's just where journalism is at the moment i think there there, there is this sort of economic anxiety that that even among papers papers that are doing well that sort of says well we have to we have to go where the audience is we have to actually chase the audience and reflect more of what we think their prejudices are rather than actually try and hold up some kind of some kind of moderating presence to them and it, it you know it is the age old uh, issue and the age old challenge of 
uh, you know, balancing what's in the public interest versus what interests the public. And and at the end of the day, unfortunately, readers vote with their with their clicks. Uh, and and unfortunately, I, I I can't see anything fundamentally altering in the, in the structure of how that's organised. Although um, it would be interesting uh, for the first paper to try to take a moral stance on something like this. Uh, what what sort of reaction they got? It's increasingly, I think it's tough because I've never worked for a newspaper. So, you know, I won't pretend to know the intricacies of uh, particularly newspaper journalism. But the issue to me from an outside perspective looking in, and I'm going to stress this at this point, that, you know, it isn't talking as an insider of any particular uh, organisation. But, you know, from a casual, almost from a, just from a football supporter's perspective, it seems like the um, the retraction element of um, falsified or overblown or clickbait stories is virtually non-existent to a lot of publishers. Um, stories are put out into the wider world with an emphasis on being fast and first rather than being right or accurate. Um, and unfortunately, that leads to mistakes or assumptions on certain people's part and to some degree will um, engage people who are looking for those kind of stories because that's what they identify with and as Steve rightly said I think the, the right phrase is echo chamber it's people will search out those kind of stories and when they find them they'll feel um, you know kind of just if it feels like it backs up their point of view, therefore they'll keep looking for it and they'll look for people that share those points of view. And it just keeps going round and round and round. And unfortunately, stories like that will drive clicks. It will sell newspapers. And that is what, unfortunately, people will try to do. If a, a newspaper writes a story, it, you know, I'm not going to, you know, say that we should shed any tears over footballers because of the fantastic lifestyle they lead and the kind of um you know the, the it's not even down to the money but the opportunities and stuff that they're afforded but it must be increasingly difficult for people like Raheem Sterling in particular or any footballer to have news about your public private life even you know kind of published on a on a daily or weekly basis it seems like for some people and have no kind of recourse other than to basically let it happen, knowing full well that that's probably reinforcing the point of view that even if it's wrong, it reinforces the point of view of those people who are, you know, see you in a negative light already. And, you know, Henry Winter did a piece in, in The Times um, last weekend, I think it was. He did a sit down interview with Raheem Sterling. He went to his house. Um, you know, he was he was very much kind of complimentary um, about Raheem and, and the way that he's approached his career since moving to Manchester City in the sense of, you know, he wants to be the best player he can be. And part of me does wonder whether the vitriol for Raheem Sterling over almost any other player I can think of in this day and age, certainly, um, is because of the whole kind of, it, it began potentially in the, um, Liverpool to Manchester City transition mm. and the whole, oh, footballers are greedy, but he's greedier than most. And that kind of gives people a, uh, a stepping stone to make that next connection um, within that that realm. And, you know, as, as good as that piece was that Henry wrote, and it was excellent, it it won't even reach the 
you know, the browsers or the social media space of people who believe the opposite. So the difficulty you're going to have is, as, as Steve mentioned, even if a paper takes a particularly kind of um, a particularly different view on this and tries to be a bit more moral and kind of to not report stuff, plenty of other people still will. And unfortunately, that's just the sad state that we're in. And people will still find that out and it will still happen. Um, I think as a whole, people just need to be held accountable maybe a bit more because ultimately football writers can put, it's when it comes to transferring as well. And I have no doubt that, you know, fed stuff by people with conflicting interests, whether that be clubs or agents or players or, you know, representatives of those players to agitate for certain outcomes. And, you know, they report on them as such. And sometimes it works. You know, we saw Jorge Mendes put out a, a statement about Jose Mourinho and how pleased Manchester United were with his progress despite their ailing fortunes um, in the last couple of days. And people will always use that media narrative to suit their own agenda. Unfortunately, the paper do likewise when it comes to things like this, because I assume they write it because they know that it sells papers or they suspect that it does and it drives clicks. And it's almost like it needs an industry wide um, kind of resolution almost, but that's increasingly difficult to enforce. Press standards are increasingly difficult to enforce anyway. And we hear, you know, you see investigations and parliamentary committees in the UK come to kind of guidelines and standards, but it's increasingly difficult. There is, you know, very little, um, very little backlash for a newspaper that publishes a story which is subsequently proven to be fabricated in some way, shape or form or just, you know, outright lies. The same in the political agenda. Politicians can say, by and large, whatever they want with virtually no recourse whatsoever. And unfortunately, you know, some newspapers find themselves in a similar situation where they can publish a large variety of stories where even if debunked further down the line, not only will most of the people that have read them and believed them and taken them in and probably repeated them as gospel as well, they'll never see those retractions or those clarifying statements um, or the kind of fact-checking element of that. And that's what just... It ends up perpetuating those feelings within the wider society. I would imagine, or certainly contributes to it. I, uh, there's there is actually some uh, academic research on uh, the number of people who see a correction on social media, for example, uh, and it's a small, uh, insignificant uh, proportion of the people who see the original post. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is this sense of you know, scoops are important, get a story out quickly, uh, beat the competition, if it's something you have to yourself. And, and everything um, that we've just talked about, uh, when you apply it to something like the, um, the transfer market, for example, the, the, the papers know their audience. They know that they have a very dedicated group of readers who are interested in knowing very quickly about uh, who might be moving from which club to which club. And so speculation uh, informed speculation is is a legitimate um, a le legitimate form of, uh, of of debate within that within that area. But you're right. Uh, the, the key the key word is accountability. And uh, as I say, you know, sports pages and sports writers have always sort of been held to a different standard almost than than uh, the rest of the media. 
Yeah, as we begin to wind down here, in the aftermath of all of this and all those aspects, both on the pitch in the stadium, fan bases, and, and the media on the whole, do you think things will start to get better soon with the actions that have been taken? I mean, I hope so. It would it would be nice to believe that this could be something of a turning point and a watershed moment because I hope that the way that, you know, the impassioned response from Raheem Sterling over the weekend perhaps is at the forefront of people's minds the next time they read a story about what has typically been a young player from uh, a, a black or ethnic minority background um, outside of a footballing context. You know, the line between what is in, uh, you know, it's already been said, but what is in the public interest and what is of interest to the public the next time a story is, you know, put out about that, whether it be the next tattoo that a player gets, the next house they buy for a family member, um, you know, anything like that. I just hope this is at the forefront of people's minds, because actually, if that starts to change the perception of the way those stories are viewed, maybe that will impact on what is being written, because it's a vicious circle. As long as people keep reading it and interacting with it and squabbling in the comments or, you know, retweeting it and getting all vitriolic on Twitter and goodness knows what else, people will keep writing that stuff. But actually, if this means that people view this in a slightly different way and say, and don't immediately retweet it as gospel and think, hmm, is this being written with an agenda outside of what I should expect of this publication from a footballing context? maybe that will help the next step in this journey, which hopefully starts to turn this tide around of, you know, people being reported on seemingly in a negative light because of nothing else other than the colour of their skin or their ethnic background or, you know, anything like that. Um, it's just, yeah, I hope that people keep this in mind um, going forward because it could also it could also be a stark reminder of, the ulterior motives that are at play um, within certain kind of areas of the media and, and, and how it's being reported. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think uh, I also hope that Raheem Sterling speaking out in the way in which he did. And as I say, I, I mentioned earlier, I thought given the circumstances, what he said was, it, it was quite restrained. Absolutely. Uh, um, and I think him speaking out might actually act as a catalyst. And I think this is maybe where, where there is something that the clubs can do, uh, if if they were if 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 somebody at each of the Premier League clubs saw this happening this weekend and said, what what would we do if that was our player? What action would we take if that was our player? And and how do we act collectively to actually try and uh, and make it appear like we're imposing some kind of uh, central standard? Um, and and maybe one way that they can do that is to regulate their access to the papers that are that are the worst offenders um because you know the papers the sports writers are nothing without access to the players um so maybe that there's something that the clubs can do uh to act in concert to actually think about well you know an, an injury to one is an injury to all almost and and how can we as uh, as a product because let's let's not forget the premier league is a product more than anything else uh how can how can we act to to moderate the behavior of the uh uh of the media that we consider to be um uh, acting uh un, unreasonably fair enough any final thoughts from you two 
let's hope we don't have to have this conversation again. But I, I suspect, as we have said, you know, racism isn't going away. Uh, we just have to make sure that we try and find a way that everyone's involved in, in the solution to it, they, even though, you know, socially, societally, um, there's not really much football can do to, to change that, but they can, they can change minds, I suppose. Yeah, it would just be nice if this, you know, ultimately wasn't forgotten in two weeks' time uh, when it's kind of out of the news cycle and it actually prompts something um, in terms of maybe making certain publications or certain writers who are responsible for putting out these kind of stories maybe think twice about them. You know, I have no issue with with footballers being criticised based solely on their footballing performance, but this clearly isn't that. And that's the kind of issue. And talking about regulating access, it's not a case of wanting clubs to regulate the access of the publications that criticise them for their on-pitch activities or, um, you know, things within a footballing context. But when it goes beyond that, um, you know, it would be interesting to see a club take that kind of stand um, and just to kind of see the impact that it has. I know, you know, certain publications have been banned from clubs in the past, but it, it tends to be more down to kind of rifts within the ownership of the club and, um, you know, negative headlines being written about certain owners or, 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 or kind of um, high profile people within those club hierarchies. So it will be interesting to see what comes of it. But as Steve said, hopefully it's something that is, isn't just forgotten about immediately. And like I say, I don't think it's, it's not something you can solve overnight, but hopefully it acts as a catalyst for people to maybe think twice, both from a, a writing perspective and from a, a kind of reader perspective as well, to view it through a slightly different um, perspective and, and maybe, you know, have that in the back of their minds when they're reading a story, which, you know, seems unnecessarily negative based on nothing more than, you know, uh, the, the colour of someone's skin or their, or their background. All right. Well, thank you both so much uh, for your thoughts and, and comments today. Uh, tell the folks where they can find you. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. I've been Jim. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Jim Knight eighty eight. As Kev says, I'm a, a, a writer about football, uh, primarily for my day job. Um, I work for a company called The Zone. Uh, I used to be Perform, and we own websites like Goal.com and Sockaway. Um, so you can find more of my writings over there on uh, less. Uh, sensitive topics than uh, than this but yeah and uh, thanks very much for having me on again Kevin I enjoyed it as always uh, my name's Steve McGookin and you can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin and you can find some of my uh, non-football thoughts over at Northern Slant uh, at Northern Slant thank you awesome thanks again to you two and folks at home we hope you keep listening Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.